bringing you the truth behind the news. Welcome to The New American. Welcome, everyone. We're glad you can join us. It's the 1st of November, and I'm Paul Dragoon. French police shot a woman who was yelling Allahu Akbar in a Parisian train station yesterday. This happened just as the FBI director issued a new warning that terrorist organizations may attack on U.S. soil. Also, in Colorado, they're trying to get Trump off the ballot. You won't be surprised to learn who's funding the group behind this latest attack on our constitutional republic. We have those stories coming up, as well as a discussion with the CEO of the John Birch Society about the importance of keeping police local in the effort to keep America from turning into a full-blown police state. But first, have electric vehicles reached the end of the road? Despite the old saying, never say never, it seems that you can't find one good thing to say about EVs. The Texas Public Policy Foundation just released a study detailing how regulatory credits, hidden costs, and subsidies hide the real costs of EVs. The report is titled, Overcharged Expectations, Unmasking the True Costs of Electric Vehicles. It says that the average consumer would spend the equivalent of $17.33 per gallon if he were to substitute a gasoline-powered vehicle. The calculation considers full costs, including charging equipment, maintenance, hidden taxes, and government subsidies, averaged over 10 years and 120,000 miles. In its executive summary, the Texas Public Policy Foundation points out that consumers have already caught on to the pitfalls of EVs with companies like Ford losing more than $70,000 per vehicle. They said that, quote, the federal government is subsidizing EVs to a greater degree than even wind and solar electricity generation and embarking on an unprecedented endeavor to remake the entire American auto industry. The reality caused the Cornwall Alliance to ask, Will the electric car mandates battle decide the 2024 election? That's a good question. In the article, Duggan Flanagan brought up other important and dangerous points about EVs that major media has been ignoring. For instance, in Pakistan, lightning hit a warehouse full of EVs and and batteries, and it caused a fire and explosions that killed a 15-year-old boy and injured 163 people. In Sydney, Five electric vehicles were destroyed at its airport when a detached EV battery burst in the flames. And in September, the British Prime Minister announced a five-year delay on banning new gasoline and diesel-powered vehicles. He cited unacceptable costs to ordinary people as the reason. The original goal was to ban them by 2030. There's also the cold reality of insurance premiums. The British auto insurer, John Lewis Financial Services, temporarily paused policies on EVs until its underwriter analyzes risks and costs. Another insurer, Aviva, refuses to insure Teslas. Other EV owners saw premiums go up 1,000% in just one year. Those insurance rates, coupled with the cost of repairs, have made EVs unaffordable for average people. The Wall Street Journal recently predicted that Biden's planned transition to EV production will cost about 117,000 auto jobs. United Auto Workers Research Director Jennifer Kelly pointed out that engine and transmission manufacturing jobs will be eliminated if EVs displace internal combustion engines. And that doesn't count the massive job losses in the petrochemical industry that are part of Biden's green plan. 
Everything suggests that the Biden administration's coercive green transition, if successful, will drastically reduce, if not completely eliminate, personal vehicles. And that's likely the goal. Earlier this year, the World Economic Forum published a white paper calling for a drastic reduction in private car use by 2050. So joining me to discuss today's stories is editor-in-chief of the New American Magazine, Gary Benoit, and the CEO of the John Birch Society, Bill Hahn. Welcome, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. So. This is a point that I don't know if even we've done that good of a job of driving home uh, because we've talked about obviously how expensive this is and driving the cost of living and whatnot. But Bill, do you think there is widespread knowledge that the goal here is to eliminate personal transportation? From a, from a standpoint of widespread knowledge, no. This, this is, uh, you, you're seeing more and more people actually jump on to the, uh, the EV buying experience uh, initially. But as we're seeing now with market trends, it's starting to go the other way. And for you know, um, lack of a, of a better term, <clears throat> those that do not understand vehicle maintenance um, are beginning to see that, well, when we have to change out these batteries, what happens? Sometimes these batteries cost more than the, the initial cost of the vehicle. And they cost more than a lot of personal vehicles that we drive. Absolutely, around. yeah. So it's, when we look at, at um, you know, the, the agenda that's behind all of this, so you know, we, we talked about this once before where you know, we look at what the United Nations has been doing through its Agenda 21 and now its Agenda 2030 is that you know, it, it is to control your life, it's to, it's to take away your choices and what better way to get people hooked onto government uh, than through a program that has gov federal government subsidies that are, that are basically supporting the, you know, the, the entire EV market, not to mention uh, you know, wind, uh, solar, um, and there is this huge attack, obviously, on the um, domestic resources, uh, you know, natural resources for our country. So we're having to, to, to buy a lot of these parts and pieces and stuff you know, from, from other countries, and then we roll these out as being some sort of environmentally you know, friendly uh, you know, product, which is never that, the That's case. not the case either, is it, Gary? <laughs> oh, no. But, Bill, uh, you mentioned Agenda 20 and uh, Agenda 2030. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, uh, it does go back that far. Uh, it, it shows that there is an organized plan behind this to ultimately get rid of the private automobile. But it goes back even farther than that. And uh, I brought with me a copy of this book, The Unfinished Agenda. Uh, it's called the Citizen's Policy Guide to Environmental Issues, and it is a task force report sponsored by the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. And of course, we're talking about the Rockefellers who are involved with, with oil, the, the same mm -hmm. Rockefellers. This book was published in 1977. And very interestingly, this task force drew conclusions that are very uh, uh, anti-automobile going back to 1977. So we'll just take uh, a look at, uh, at some of this. But uh, it says in here, for instance, that the Environmental Protection Agency considers and approves regional transportation plans. A basic point must be kept in mind. A system built around the automobile is the primary means of transportation is energy and land consuming. Its continued viability under scarce energy and land conditions must be questioned. So that conclusion is coming from this Rockefeller Brothers Fund Task Force. And it's part of a broader agenda because uh, uh, this task force also drew this conclusion. 
As must be clear by now, this book is about a world transition from abundance to scarcity, a transition that is already well underway. So they want to transition from abundance to scarcity, which is exactly uh, what we're seeing here. Right, and it's exactly what happens in a socialistic society, isn't it? Because under socialism, you're not looking at producing more and more Mm -hmm. uh, materials, more and more abundance. What you're looking at instead is dividing up what you already have. And of course, what you already have is constantly reduced over time because you're not producing new things. Aren't you also looking at the government having control of those, whatever those well, scale resources exactly. are? Exactly, yeah, because yeah. Uh, they're not talking about getting rid of transportation, are they? Yeah. Uh, they're talking about getting rid of the private automobile. You wanted to ask Absolutely, yeah. Right. Well, as, as a matter of fact, too, it's, it's not so much even uh, that it limit or that it, that we're that we're talking about just natural resources mm-hmm. and scarcity either. What is what is the the prime reason that people have vehicles? Freedom. Yeah. Freedom of mobility they, to go places. Right. You start tinkering with that, and not only are we are we looking at natural resources, but we're also looking at freedom. Freedom. So it, we're going from an abundance of freedom to a scarcity. I, of freedom. I would argue that's the entire point, and I think we just we we've been making Absolutely. that point because we have the resources. They're not worried about that. They're worried about taking your liberty to yep. move about uh, because they're in the business of taking your liberty. That's what's at stake here. People have to realize this. This isn't about the environment. We've already shown that that's not the case. What it takes to make these things is very environmentally friendly. This is about your freedom. And uh, I, maybe we, we need to do a better do- job tr- driving that home. Uh, we got to go on to, the, uh, to our next story. After this, we're going to look at Colorado's attempt to keep Donald Trump off the ballot. I, I certainly would not want a constitutional convention. I mean, whoa, (laughs) who knows what would come out of that? Just imagine if we have a constitutional convention, the number of people who will be unhappy and the number of people who say the results are not valid, and then they'll just ignore the entire constitution. What we need are just more people that would read the one we have. It isn't the constitution that's the problem. It is the people who ignore the constitution that usurp power and abuse the constitutional power that they ostensibly have. If you can't enforce an existing piece of paper, how are you going to enforce a piece of paper that has a little more writing to it? In other words, it's been amended. It's up to us to hold our elected officials accountable. What can you do to elect good representatives and senators in your state legislature who understand the Constitution and are willing to take a stand? Some Colorado voters want to keep President Donald Trump off the 2024 ballot in their state. The trial began on Monday. It accuses Trump of violating his oath of office by trying to overturn the 2020 election and of instigating riots at the Capitol on January 6. Six voters are named plaintiffs in the case. Last week, District Judge Sarah Wallace rejected Trump's request to toss the lawsuit. The plaintiffs argue that Trump engaged in insurrection or rebellion after having sworn to support and defend the U.S. Constitution. They say that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment prohibits him from running in future elections or holding office. One of Trump's attorneys, Scott Gessler, called the lawsuit anti-democratic and politicized. You don't say. He said the plaintiffs are trying to get the court to endorse the one-sided poisonous report of the House January 6th committee. The watchdog group called Crew 
which stands for Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, filed a suit along with several law firms on behalf of the six Republican and unaffiliated voters. Crew is openly funded by George Soros. Here is C-SPAN interviewing Melanie Sloan, the group's founding executive director, back in 2009. Who are some of the biggest donors you have, and is there a restriction on how much money they can give you? Um, we don't have any restriction, um, but I would say our, our biggest donors are, uh, for example, the um, uh, uh, the Open Society Institute is a, a very big donor. The, and whose who's organization is that? Well, it's an... It's a foundation, but uh, it's well known to be uh, George Soros is the one who funds it. The Wallace Global Fund gives us money. Um, <clears throat> the ARCA Foundation gives us money. Those are some of the big foundations where we, Carnegie Corporation gives us money. You, you do see a thread through the different sides in this where a, a big donor like George Soros will give to an awful lot of progressive organizations. Does, it, does he ever ask for anything directly? No, he, and I have met him, and he's never asked for anything at all. And uh, I meet with the program officer from uh, from the Open Society Institute, and they're very happy with what we do, and uh, they're very uh, keen on transparency. We're part of their democracy program. Cruz, current senior vice president and chief counsel in the lawsuit is Donald Sherman. His resume includes time spent as special assistant to President Barack Obama for racial and economic justice at the White House. He's a career civil servant for Democrats on Capitol Hill. Meanwhile, Texas Republican Congressman Troy Nails said this on the social media platform X. I'm honored to announce I will be serving as a fact witness for President Trump's defense in the 14th Amendment removal sham trial in Colorado. I was at the doors on January 6th, face to face with protesters, and I know firsthand there was no insurrection. This sham trial is clear election interference and it has no basis in fact. I look forward to providing my eyewitness account of that. Nels is a former police officer who served in Iraq and was awarded the Combat Infantryman Badge for Combat Actions. He was also elected sheriff in Texas in 2012 and 2016. He was featured in Dinesh D'Souza's latest expose, The Police State. And here he is discussing the killing of Ashley Babbitt. I was one of the last members to leave the House chamber on January 6th. I was at the back doors, the main doors leading into the chamber. I was protecting those doors. Ah, uh, the window there to the right is the window that Ashley Babbitt jumped through. Lieutenant Byrd was positioned over there on the left. And Ashley Babbitt fell back and died right there. Yes. I heard that shot that took Ashley Babbitt's life. She was posing a threat to United States. House of Representatives. He had no clue what her intentions were. I had been yelling and screaming as loud as I was, please stop, get back, get back. I don't believe anybody heard him giving those commands. She didn't know there was a gun being pointed at her. He says he couldn't see her hands. He couldn't tell if it was a female. If that would have happened in the summer of 2020, with the riots we saw across our country, you would have been indicted within a week. Gentlemen, um, even with our corrupt legal system. We know it's corrupt. It seems uh, a stretch because this trial seems it's based on the assumption that there was an insurrection. But as far as I know, I know there's an effort to to paint that as what happened, but there has been no court, not even in this corrupt legal system that has actually determined that he engaged in insurrection. So how is this going forward, even in today's uh, corrupt legal system? 
Well, uh, obviously the charge of insurrection is being used to go against democracy, or, or at least to go against uh, the right of people to be able to exercise the franchise, to be mm -hmm. able to vote. And uh, I think it's just incredible, Paul, because the left always talks about democracy. And of course, we're, we're not a democracy, but we're a constitutional republic. But there are democratic elements that are built into our system. Uh, and that includes people being able to vote for the president uh, of the United States, right? And yet we have a, a judge who is uh, uh, now conducting a trial uh, that uh, is based on the argument that the people should not be able to decide. The people should not be able to decide uh, whether or not they want Trump as, as president. Yeah. Uh, what is wrong with letting the people decide? Well, and you know, take a look at the constitutional aspects mm -hmm. of this as well. You know, from from a from a standpoint of, of what it says in regards to the uh, the conduct of, of judges, uh, they're not in there for for a lifetime. They're in there for during good behavior only. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so let's exercise a little constitutional judgment, um, you know, of our own, knowing that elections have consequences. So if if this person is not abiding by the by the rule of law or by the constitution. The electorate in that area has no um, um, option other than to throw that to person remember. out. Yeah, yeah. and, and it's interesting that six plaintiffs and this group that's backed by Soros, surprise, surprise, can push an effort that could possibly result in Trump not being on the ballot in Colorado, where obviously there will be millions of people who wanted to vote uh, for for Donald Trump. They're uh, obviously being denied their, their franchise, aren't they? If right. They can't vote for the candidate they want to vote for. But I wonder what would happen if people were to write in Trump's name. <laughs> uh, you know, let, let's say yeah, that, let's one. say Trump actually is thrown off the ballot in Colorado, yeah. and people who want Trump to be president they write in his name. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think the government would count those those votes? Yeah, I have no idea, but I, I would hope that we don't even get to that point. I don't think we've ever ever in the uh, in American history we've been at a point where a legitimate presidential candidate is held off the ballot. I mean, Trump's ahead by 50-60. And speaking of the judge by the way, she is actually she has donated to the leftist group Colorado Turnout Project and it's a pack that says it's dedicated to fighting insurrectionists. So we have an activist judge. None, none, of, none of this is surprising. And I she just- Should have been recused at that point. Right? Well, there was an attempt, right. yes. There was an attempt and uh, she, she refused to, to recuse herself. And we're seeing, again, more and more of this. Obviously, mm -hmm. we're seeing this with Judge sure. Garan in New York, activist judge, mugging for the cameras. I mean, That's even true. when there was plenty of reason to throw out the case, he did it. Right. And, uh, and I think it's, it's very obvious that these would had to be activist judges, even if we were not aware of their backgrounds, because if they were not, if they really were impartial judges, mm -hmm. if, the law, if the law really was not being weaponized, uh, they would throw these cases out of court. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Trump's team tried to get that done and, and, and she wouldn't, she wouldn't mm -hmm. throw the case out. You know, and it's, uh, it's not gonna end, and it's gonna be the most interesting year <laughs> up until November. I don't, I, you know, I guess in a way, it's a good time to be alive, but I, you know, I think there's a little, uh, I don't know, concern maybe. How is this going to turn out? Because that doesn't seem, I mean, if he gets past this, and he, maybe he will, then there's going to be another one and another one and another one. And they're just going to keep doing this until they take him down. Have you, Gary, Bill, ever heard of anything like this? No. <laughs> Not to this extent, no. And the, the interesting thing is, you know, if, if um, this just continues to, to, to precipitate and, and move forward, 
you know, we're, we're looking at uh, perhaps a scenario in which, you know, Trump does become president that he, you know, just basically, you know, says, okay, well, I'm going to pardon myself. Right, and he, and he starts the yeah, whole I, process. Yeah, undoubtedly do that if he becomes president, yeah. right? And more than once, too, obviously, right? <laughs> so, do you think, Bill, he could become president uh, while sitting in a jail cell? Because uh, I do. it's very possible. Mm -hmm. Guys, we got to take a break here. Folks, be sure to visit thenewamerican.com for more truth behind the news. And if you don't have one already, get a subscription to the print edition of the New American magazine. The New American offers in-depth coverage and analysis you will not find anywhere else. You can subscribe at thenewamerican.com or you can call our office at 800-727-8783. After this, the threat of Islamic terrorism is rising in the United States. Freedom is the cure. You're dead on. This is the largest experiment performed on human beings in the history of the world. The more you know. What they're doing is they're forcing vaccination on people. And I believe they are killing people with this vaccination. The freer you are. It's murder. They are basically murdering people in hospitals. The all-cause mortality we know is now higher in the vaccinated group than the unvaccinated group. Stay informed on the issues that affect freedom. Get a subscription to The New American today. TheNewAmerican.com French police shot and wounded a woman at a Parisian rail station yesterday after she began yelling, Allahu Akbar, and you are all going to die. Police believe the woman who was wearing a hijab also threatened security forces protecting French sites from terrorism in 2021. They shot her when she refused to obey police orders. She is in the hospital receiving care. France is already at its highest alert level for terrorism. Last month, a suspected terrorist stabbed and killed a teacher. There were also several threats made against French airports and cultural sites since the Israel-Hamas war in the Middle East has erupted. Meanwhile, in America, the FBI director said on Tuesday that Hamas's attack on Israel has raised the threat level of international terrorism in the U.S. He said this before the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. And while the director is saying the obvious, his boss is trying to prevent Texas from securing the border with razor wire. But on Monday, a federal judge temporarily blocked the Biden administration from cutting razor wire that Texas authorities installed on the southern border. Texas officials sued the Department of Homeland Security and other agencies last week for removing the razor wire, arguing that the Lone Star State has the sovereign right to construct border barriers to prevent the entry of illegal aliens. Federal officials have said that they sometimes need to cut the wire to provide medical assistance or process migrants who have illegally entered American soil. The order will last until November 13th, and the parties will have a hearing on the case on November 7th. And speaking of tying the hands of those working on the southern border, a whistleblower told Missouri Senator Josh Hawley that DHS special agents were being pulled off investigations into child trafficking to make sandwiches for illegal immigrants. Here is Hawley asking DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas about that. Are, are there HSI special agents who are currently at the border having been pulled away from other cases? Combating, yes no? combating the fight against fentanyl, yes. 
how many agents are currently at the border having been pulled off of their other cases? To fight uh, the scourge of fentanyl, I'd be very pleased to provide you with that data. That's not what the special agent is, is alleging. That's not what she said. She said that they're being taken off of fentanyl interdiction, off of child exploitation cases, off of their other investigations into criminals to make sandwiches. That's her quote. You're saying that this is a lie? That she's wrong? Uh, Senator, um, we have a number of law enforcement priorities with the resources. Is making we sandwiches have, one of them? We have, uh, of course not, Senator. We accomplish a tremendous amount. Because, is she wrong? Because of the tremendous talent and dedication of our personnel, including uh, Homeland Security investigations. Making sandwiches for, for illegal immigrants. Is she wrong? This is one of your agents. Is she wrong? She says that there are 600 at least special agents pulled off of other cases, sent down to the border to babysit illegal immigrants. Is she wrong? Uh, Senator, um, our personnel, we use our personnel to achieve the maximum law enforcement objective possible. Ah. That is what we do. And so you're I'm not going to deny it. And I'm incredibly proud of what our people do well, this every is news. single day. This is news. This is indeed news. He clearly did not deny it. I, my, I'm guessing he didn't want to perjure himself because when they find out to be the truth, that's what we're going to find out. What do you guys think of that? 600 or any number of uh, Border Patrol agents who are making sandwiches. I feel like I'm living in the twilight. <laughs> well, talk about somebody that needs to be impeached. Right, right there's a classic yes. example. You know, I mean, somebody that, that does not, will not follow the rule of law. You know, I mean, how hard is it? <laughs> to, to do your job. But yet we know that that's all part of, of, of what they're supposed to be doing, is not doing what they should be doing. Does that make sense? You know well, that's what? what they want them to do, right. <laughs> that's why this, uh, yeah. this uh, subversive administration, and I don't know what else you can call it for, because we know under Trump, and you can see Border Patrol's own numbers, and we've reported them on numerous times. The fiscal years where Trump was in power, the last one, the... Uh, the encounters were about half a million uh, at, at some point, which is still well, a lot. Over the period of a year, right? Yes, right. yes, over One a period year. of a year. Then the moment the Biden administration came in, it started to skyrocket, and now we're looking at 2.3 million. Again, those are just encounters. That's not counting everyone who came through. Yeah. Uh, you're right. Who, who didn't get caught? Who didn't get That's caught? How many? That's scary. Right. Right. But I think it's even uh, exploding uh, beyond that uh, because they're talking now about upwards of 500,000 a month. And uh, of course, uh, making sandwiches instead of securing the border, uh, you know, that is an example that, that resonates. Yeah. But uh, there are other examples too. But overall, we obviously have a, an open border. We have an open border mm -hmm. policy, which is against the law. Yeah. I, you know, I found curious the DHS spokesperson's explanation for why they were cutting the razor wire. It was to process and to give medical care. Well, how, how is that? Po I, I, I guess it's while they're on, on, on there. So they're saying we're cutting it so we can let them in and then process them. Right. That's, that's nonsense. Well, yeah. I know it's nonsense, but the reason it doesn't make any sense is because it's simply an excuse. Because the fix isn't at the top. Because the plan is really to have an open border mm -hmm. to overwhelm the country with massive immigration, both legal and Illegal. Yeah, yeah. And I brought Laura Reese up yesterday. She worked under the, in the Trump administration for DHS. And one of the, uh, she was interviewed by a Daily Wire host. And one of the things that he asked her was about this idea. Are there people within this administration who uh, don't like America, who are true Marxists? And she said, yes, yes, there are people 
in our government's administration, in the Biden administration, who do not like the country that they're supposed to serve. And I don't know of any, I've, this is an illustration, right? Well, of course, you know, but let's look at the bigger picture here. So we, we fought, the John Birch Society, you know, fought a, um, a battle back in uh, 20, 2010, 2012, in regards to the North American Union, okay? And one of the, the um, uh, goals that they're try, trying to do is basically to erase the borders between Canada, United States, and, and then the United States and Mexico, mm. right? And they want a free flow travel of, of people and goods and, you know, and right. so on and so forth. And they put this, this big, you know, economic spin on it. But what that means then is obviously there's not three countries there's going to be one supranational, yeah. you know, country. Oh, it's interesting you brought that up because Ms. Reese, she, she brought that up too. She says there are people in this administration who do not believe there should be any borders. Yeah. And we're seeing that. Right, Gary? Uh, ab absolutely. And, of course, what we're talking about in terms of regional government modeled after the EU, the mm -hmm. European Union, is really a stepping stone to world government. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which is what they want. Uh, they want to create a world government. And, uh, you know, anyone who thinks, well, gee, maybe that might be a good thing to have a world government because then you wouldn't have nations yeah. fighting with each other, <laughs> should consider what a world government actually means. It would mean that we'd be merging with totalitarian regimes such as China. Yeah. Right? Who's uh, been asked such their as, own. Uh, such as uh, Russia. Uh, it would mean we'd have to scrap the Constitution of the United States, scrap the Declaration of Independence. And do we really want to do those things? Well, the people do not. But our rulers do, or at least many of our, our rulers do. The people at the top are working toward that objective because they imagine themselves being the masters of the universe. I would argue that every story we ran today, all three or four, however you want to consider it, shows, illustrates how the attempt at building this one world government, the EV to restrict liberty, to, to uh, deindustrialize us, uh, to enslave us in various ways. Centralizing and, power. Centralizing power. And of course, you have what's happening to Trump. He was an anomaly. He wasn't supposed to get in there. His idea of America first flies in the face of this one world government. And then, of course, we're seeing this, this massive influx of people who are going to come here and they're going to dilute the principles and values of the people in this nation so this nation ceases to exist. We got a few seconds left. Bill, why don't you finish us off here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is, this is why there, there is always a need for action. You always have to have an educated electorate that understands the issues out there and are holding their elected officials accountable. This is why the John Birch Society was created, and this is why we ask uh, anybody that's, that's concerned about this to join with us to understand the issues, yeah. to go out and, and get organized through the John Birch Society and help us in our mission of less government, more responsibility, and with God's help, a better world. Right. And people have to realize that we are in the midst of that battle. So for anyone who's thinking, what's the point? Well, we can say two things. One, we don't want you <laughs> joining us. But two, the point is there's no other choice. Right. And we have one. I mean, last week we went over the, the victories in, in the carbon capture. And what we're seeing right now is that is that battle. That means if the battle is raging, it means it's not over. And it's far far from over. The fact that Trump won, the fact that legitimately he'd win again means that some would argue we are ahead. All right. After this, Bill Hahn will discuss the importance of working with your local police. In 1988, the John Birch Society produced a documentary so predictive, it's as though they had a time machine. 
Out of Control, Immigration Invasion, was produced and hosted by investigative reporter William F. Jasper and looks at the growing problem of unrestricted illegal immigration that, in 1988, already saw upwards of 10 to 20 million illegal aliens within the borders of the U.S. Unknown agents from around the world using the southern border as easy entry. Certainly, some are innocent families escaping hardship, but also certainly some are criminals, potentially terrorists. Is it not appropriate that there be some criteria for the entry of any sovereign nation? Why should the U.S. be different than Canada, Germany, Russia, Japan, or every other country on the planet? Out of control, immigration invasion. Watch this time capsule of prescient wisdom at thenewamerican.com slash outofcontrol. On Friday, the New American Daily published an episode on the dangers of the rising police state. Bill Hahn joins me to discuss the importance of keeping our police local and independent. All right, sir. So this is a, I believe this was our second action project ever in the history of the John Birch Society. We launched it sometime in the 60s after to get us out of the United Nations. 63. Is it 63? Yeah. Yeah. And there is a massively good reason why we chose to focus on keeping police local, isn't it? Yes. Matter of fact, uh, 1963. So that was two years after there was a a hearing that was held by the Committee on the Judiciary of the United States Senate. Okay. So we have this, um, the, uh, the, uh, it's called a communist plot against the free world police. Yeah. And this the is congressional hearing. Yes. And this, this is something that, um, we have in our, in our archive, but is that Edward Hunter's testimony? Um, no, it's, it's, it actually has uh, a different, different gentleman in there that, uh, is discussing okay. his testimony. Uh, I'd have to dig through it to find out his name, but I will tell you what he said. He said in here as he testified, uh, our police are among the foremost guardians of freedom and thus a major target of the communists. The better the force, the greater its efficiency, the higher its competence in preserving the peace, and so the more vital it is for communists to destroy it. Mm -hmm. He continues, I understand it is the committee's desire that I outline the tactics of communist subversion and and describe several case histories illustrating their technique for attacking the police. And he did so. And so within two years of that, then we launched the Support Your Local Police and Keep Them Independent campaign. Mm -hmm. And it was all to basically uh, provide a bulwark of freedom around our local police. Because when you look at other countries where they have a national or a federal police force, these are these are uh, police officers, law enforcement that are enforcing uh, the dictates of the state, of, of, of whether it's one person, um, mm. you know, a body of people, whatever it is. Yeah. We do not have that here in the U.S. We decentralize that power. Well, I, I would say the, to a certain degree, we could see what a centralized police force looks like when you look at the FBI SWATs, yes. the raids, these things. Yes. This is what they want. And the problem with local police is, in a way, they would stand in the way. I think some would make the argument, and I think it's a legitimate argument, that they haven't stood in the way enough of, of that. And, and I think that it, all, it, it boils down to the, uh, the electorate that keep them accountable. Because that, the, 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 that is a direct reflection of, of that electorate. 
the, the informational level that they have, the educational level that they have in regards to that system of, of what, what we would deem a hallmark of liberty, the local police, as opposed to mm-hmm. you know, national police. Once you travel into a country um, and you are from that, or, or if you're from that country, uh, you know, as, as, as you were you know, once from, from Romania, you understand where the the power comes from and how it's how it's enforced yeah right but that's not the case here in the u.s but once you experience that yeah then you know for darn sure oh my goodness we want to make sure that the local police stay local and that they are independent of federal control yeah i mean it's no coincidence that as hitler was building power before he ultimately took power he ended up centralizing all police uh, there were yes. municipalities that were independent, just like they were here to whatever. And he knew, he knew as a tyrant, in order to take power, he has to have a monopoly on force. And that's Absolutely. what this comes down to. Yeah. And, and, and he also disarmed the, the, the populace as well. Yes. You know, so, so any, any type of, um, of, of push to, you know, centralize the, the police or to defund the police uh, mm. or, you know, any attack that, that's going to, you know, as, as, uh, as, as Mr. Welch uh, said, to discredit, demoralize, or destroy local police forces. Yes. You know, and, and, and of course, we all had a front seat to that. In 2020? You know, right, right, with Antifa and, and BLM. Well, and you're speaking of disarming police, and I, I believe we, we have talked about this before too, but it, it bears repeating. There were, I believe, county sheriffs, and you brought this up, in, mm-hmm. in, in Illinois, when they passed their draconian uh, gun restrictions, who said no, not in my county. Right. And that's a perfect example of how local police can stand in the way of disarmament. Just one example, Absolutely, right? yeah. And, and again, you know, the, the county sheriff is the highest elected official in the county. He has the, the power and the duty to stand up to usurpations of power from local, state, and federal. Mm-hmm. All right? Uh, that's very important. And now that we are, we are seeing a large push, obviously, from international, the United Nations, uh, other other global bodies that are pushing for disarmament of, of of overall populations, except for government officials, law enforcement that have um, um, credence to uh, the, the 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 federal government or whatever central power it is, um, you know, that just makes the 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 county officials, uh, you know, whether it's the sheriff, uh, you know, others that are on the board. These are folks that have to stand up and say, no, a hallmark of freedom is local police as well as, as, as an armed population. We, we offer lots of tools and information on this too, don't we? Absolutely, yeah. And as a matter of fact, that, that's why we're here, right? What can we do about it? <laughs> right. So I, I can tell you that the, the John Birch Society has used organizational methods uh, in order to help educate those in the, in the local communities so that we keep these police mm-hmm. local and accountable to just the local uh, communities. Mm-hmm. So the way we, do, we go about doing it, uh, one way anyway, is, is to create an ad hoc committee, uh, f- which, which we call the Support Your Local Police. Right. And these are, are, are members of that committee don't necessarily need to be members of the John Birch Society, even though the leadership of that committee is. Mm-hmm. But that way you can bring in additional uh, folks from other organizations uh, that are also interested in supporting your police. And so it's, it's a matter of, of having activities, plan, planning for activities, going out, uh, getting to know your local police, um, educating them on, 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 the, on the constitutional duties that they have uh, to protect the, uh, the citizens against you know, power usurpations. Uh, which they may not understand to begin with. And, did, I, and I think that plays to your, your original point of, well, maybe they haven't stood up enough. 
they haven't really been taught all of this, did, and neither you, has most Americans. Did you mention uh, helping and talk, ed, helping educate perhaps police chiefs or even sheriffs? Absolutely, yeah, but, for sure. Because, and again, it, it goes back to you know whether or not they they were told about this. Is this stuff that you and I learned in 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 in, in you know public school? No, absolutely not. No, stuff know? I learned here at the John Birch Society. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. You know, and I've been I've been with the society for sixteen years, and I. Just, continue to learn on on an hourly basis to be yeah. honest with you with all I, this. I actually learned this before you know uh, when I was living out in Montana um, in 2020 when everything erupted especially with the mandates and mass mandates especially uh, there was a gentleman who was reading the New American and he was very versed on the John Birch Society and he was the one that was leading this and he was the one who was telling me it's like look we need to get the sheriff to make sure that he understands uh, that his duty is to protect us from from these mandates from these restrictions and they did they met with the sheriff and uh, the sheriff they helped the sheriff understand and the sheriff as I understand uh, agreed that he yes. was not going to uh, enforce any of this stuff. It became one of those places where there was no teeth behind any of the mm -hmm. mass mandates or anything like that. So that was a pure, that was my first experience with how supporting your local police is effective in in uh, protecting our liberty. Right, and, and there's, there's other successes that we've had through the Support Your Local Police uh, ad hoc committees, and that is uh, where communities try, or leftists uh, in, in communities try to control the police and to um, uh, basically do more do harm to them than, boards, than good. Huh? Yeah, right, the civilian review boards. Yeah. You know, so anything that's that's like that within within your local community, you'll want to uh, try to get rid of. Uh, and, and you know, and which which basically helps to uh, give the police back the you know the uh, their, their, right. their policing duties that they need yeah. to need to enforce. I would add because we're winding down here. Mm -hmm. If you go to jbs.org and you go under Take Action, there you'll see on the drop down support your local police. Right. And uh, we provide not just information on what this is really about, what's at right. the heart of this, but we provide. Uh, that a manual for how you could create an ad hoc committee, which yep. is really crucial. And then, of course, yeah. Bill's got here. Now, I've got we, a, just a pile of stuff yeah, here, yeah. too. I've, obviously, those that are listening can't, can't quite see it. Right. We but, have pamphlets. We have trifles yeah, and Slim Jims and booklets that you can get at jbs.org. You can order them in bulk and pass them out. This is one of the most important issues and one of the most important elements to maintaining freedom. We People have to understand this. Thank you, Bill. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the New American Daily. Remember to visit newamerican.com, and we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>